Businesses today have a problem. They like to talk at their customers with email, with billboards, with ads. They don't like to talk with their customers. And that is where all the learning comes. That's where you learn what Mark or Bogdan wants to buy, what they're actually interested in, why they're buying your product. You don't actually know the why behind anything. You're making assumptions based off lookalike audiences and fancy survey tools you bought on the internet. It's not the same as having detailed conversations, first person from your customers that tell you exactly the specifics. Hello, and welcome to Funded, a podcast by Pixel Recess. I'm your host, Mark Hubbard. Today, we're doing something a bit different in a couple of ways. First, we've been talking to a lot of funding sources in the Atlanta market this season, and so I thought it was important to spend some time hearing from one of the Funded. If you watched the news in January, you saw that a company called Voxy had just raised roughly $7 million from some of Atlanta's most respected investors. Today, we are talking to Voxy founder and CEO Bogdan Constantine, and here is the second way this episode is different. It's a two-parter. Bogdan is a serial entrepreneur with a fascinating family and professional story, and so in part one, we'll cover his background, the founding and growth of his first company, how he raised money not from Atlanta or the Valley or the East Coast, but from investors in Arkansas, leading to a successful exit and the genesis of Voxy. Please subscribe to and rate the show wherever you listen. Visit pixelrecess.com to provide feedback and to learn about our work as a product and venture studio. At Pixel, we're building a portfolio of amazing founders using technology at scale to address some of the world's biggest challenges. If you care about social impact and want to help fund it, or if you know of any remarkable companies in need of resources, please reach out to hello at pixelrecess.com. As always, thanks for listening, and we'll see you back here next week for part two. Hey, Bogdan Constantine, founder and CEO of Voxy. We're a conversational text marketing platform helping uh, consumer brands better connect with, learn from, and ultimately drive more revenue from their existing client bases, all through AI-powered text messages that feel, look, and often act very human. All right, we will talk about Voxy, but from the moment I met you, you're one of those people that you can just tell is an entrepreneur. There's something, whether that's an act or not, it feels like it's in your DNA. So try to identify for me where that came from. Where did you grow up and is that part of your family? Yeah, that's a really good point, Mark. I definitely think it is. And I I appreciate you saying that. I think it's a very kind compliment. Thank you. So I don't know if I've ever told you this, but I'm an immigrant. So I actually immigrated to the United States as a kid from Romania. I was born right before the Iron Wall or communism fell. Basically, millions of people have been thrust into this new world where they didn't have access to anything that they had before communism provided all. My dad was what was called an electromechanic. My mom is an accountant. And after communism, all those jobs went away. And if you didn't know somebody, you got no job. So my dad basically and his brothers all had to hustle. They would do anything, odd jobs. They ended up going in and buying a truck to do transports. We ended up actually, when I was really little, immigrating to Germany. And that's where I spent a couple of years growing up as a like a young kid. And then finally ended up making it to the United States. But by that point, I had seen my dad go through so many what I would call hustles. Anything and anything he could do to put food on the table for his family. And there were like tens of thousands of guys like him. And when I got here, through a lot of luck, my dad ended up getting in the construction industry because that's the only place to get a job. You know, I spoke very little English at the time. And over a period of about three years, taught himself English. 
My mom did too. She was working at a factory. And in about three years, he started a company where he was basically a contractor doing odd job, construction job. That's what he does now. He's been able to build a pretty successful business out of it. Wow. My uh, kid brother works with him and they, they manage that together. But from an early age, it was all about the hustle. How can I make an extra buck? I would help him buy and flip cars, anything, <laughs> and, any, and, anything and everything where he could find a way to make an extra buck for his family. Because again, he came here with very little. So from an early age, I got to see that. I got to, you had to think on your feet. You had to solve problems quickly and you had to find arbitrage opportunities, right? How can I create value? At one point when this, when it was legal, we would go to um, auction. If you got in a wreck, the insurance would sell your car at auction. He would go buy the car, figure out how to fix it. Then it would pass all kinds of rigorous safety inspections and he could sell it. And he could usually make 30 to 40% on that. <laughs> so that was what he was doing when he, when times were tough, where he didn't have like construction jobs. I was helping. So I, I had a little, a lot of those tricks of the trade. So I would say very much it comes from my upbringing, which was lower class, lower middle class, whatever you want to call it. And as I grew up, they kind of entered middle class and then upper middle class and all those things as the business started having more success over the years. But I got to see the struggle and I got to be a part of it. And that very much cemented it for me. In particular, I think a lot of entrepreneurs are uncomfortable with adversity. Often they're very accomplished. They've gone to the right schools. Things have always come naturally. And for me, like school is very easy. I always got straight A's, all that stuff. It wasn't a challenge, but I got to see the struggle. I got to be a part of it. And every day it was hard. And that taught me this is life. This is how I, I have to adapt to it. Whereas I've met a lot of entrepreneurs who unfortunately these companies don't make it. And often part of it is when you're dealt with adversity, what do you do? I, I know what it's like being, for lack of a better word, not successful or a failure every day or yeah. having to worry about how we're going to pay the electricity bill or whatever, because I got to help try to figure that out. So I'm comfortable huh. with certainty. Yeah, and but there, so there's a version of that where you internalize the stress associated yeah. with that kind of a lifestyle. And it makes you not want to ever be involved in anything like that at all. But it sounds like the stress of it somehow wasn't quite communicated in that way. No, uh, I agree with you. I hate doing anything with construction. Don't tell my dad. I do all the time. I, he cannot get me to volunteer. I've done so much work, like free work for him over the years. And obviously very appreciative for me, but I don't like to do that at all. I hate it. Like I almost have an aversion. So you're right. There is a, there is a true stress. I don't think it really impacted me. And to this day, things can happen at a startup or my past business where it's existential or my business partners wouldn't be able to sleep at night and they'd be texting me at three in the morning and I wouldn't respond. I'm able to, I guess, internalize stress in a way where it does not impact my performance in terms right. of like sleeping, cognitive function, things like that. Obviously I can get stressed and I can feel it, but I think a big part of my upbringing was I'm just used to that. It's just, this is normal, right? Like I'm, yeah. I'm used to that uncomfortableness. Do you think? Um, do you I, think that's a that's an advantage versus a lot of other founders? Is it healthy? Exactly. W would it be healthy to try to be that way if it wasn't in your nature? Really good point. So the first one, do I think it's an advantage? Obviously, I'm very biased, but I do, and here's why. I think there's only one reason that startups fail or succeed. That's because the founder chose to fail or succeed by giving up. Right. So a big part of that is grit. And grit is coming to work every day. Ben Horowitz is a great book, The Hard Thing About Hard Things. And he has this one section that I probably read once a quarter about how it, it basically talks about how you feel like you're failing and everything is going down and you're trying to convince anyone to replace you and everyone thinks you're the best person for the job. So you have to sit there and just deal with the pain and the onslaught and the misery, which can happen sometimes in startups at, at certain points in, the, in their life cycle. 
And I've been, you know, fortunate or unfortunate, we're going to call it, to have had that a couple of times in, in my career. And I just can't give up. I know in my heart that I just have to keep going. And often in those places, that darkest moment, most people are like, what am I doing this for? I'm killing myself. I used to have hair, Mark. I don't have hair anymore. <laughs> yeah, we're not using the video I, for this. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, maybe that's how I, uh, maybe you can edit hair on my head. But that's how I'm externalizing. I don't know, maybe. But when you think about it, yes, I do think that upbringing gave me a, an advantage in that I can deal with uncertainty. I can deal with basically feeling like a failure often, which is right. a lot of founders I've talked to have that as part of a mental health right. type situation. And I'm just like, I'm okay with it, which is yeah. strange. Now, your second point, is it healthy? If I was younger, like five years younger, I'd probably say, <laughs> yeah, I'm not worried about it. The older I get, I think the more cognizant I am of, of health and longevity. And to that point, I think there's things that you can do to counteract that. For me, often what, what works best is I used to not have the best like actual physical health. I would just get engrossed in work. I wouldn't care about what I was eating, but I've obviously changed over really the last five years. I've had a pretty profound shift and always cognizant of what I'm eating, caloric value, but also like the nutrients. And then I really started focusing on exercise. I don't like going to a gym and for lack of a better word, seeing all those jack guys with tank tops <laughs> and all those things. I've never been, that's never been me, but I got into running and I don't listen to music when I run. I will either listen to podcasts or audiobooks or listen to nothing. And it's when I get to think. And I found that to be extremely helpful for my stress levels. Obviously, it's great to get a workout in, but more so it's like a place where I have where I can clear my mind. I'll usually do five to seven mile runs. That's been a big part of it. And, and it's helped me as the stress increases, right? The more successful you get, the more stressful things seem to get. There's like a perfect R square there. And that's helpful. But I would say that without mitigating it, thinking about your overall health, it is not probably healthy. Now, one thing I will say that also has been a, a strange part of my life is I've never been a good sleeper. My entire life, I've never slept long. I remember going to sleepovers, few and mm -hmm. far between with my friends as a kid, and they'd sleep till like nine or 10. And I'd be up at five, just like not having anything to do. I didn't want to wake anybody up at some random person's house. I'd usually find, make my way to the kitchen to hang out with their parents for like three hours or drinking coffee or whatever, but I don't need a lot of sleep. And I think that has helped with everything else because I'm able to work. I'll work till midnight one and then I'm up at five, 4.30 or five and I'm at it again. And I'm fine. My dad is the same way, believe it or not. So I think some, there's some genetics. Yeah, some there. genetics. So the other thing that a first generation immigrant can face is the aspirational pressure of their family. Yeah. And so as you started to think about going to school, did, did you face that? Were they too pragmatic for that? Or? It's a really good question. A lot of like first-generation immigrants you'll hear, they'll tell you you want to be a doctor, you want to be a lawyer. Something and safe. That, yeah, something safe. They definitely planted that seed that I was going to be a lawyer. I remember my mom telling yeah. me, one day you'll be a lawyer. And like, you could be, you will be, right? Like, you'll be a lawyer and you'll make plenty of money and be able to take care of your family and all those things. And I remember growing up, that was like my, my trajectory, right? I was going to be a lawyer. And what ended up happening happening, interestingly enough for me, is as I was graduating high school, that, that financial collapse was occurring. And my dad had one of the best years he'd ever had in his business. Uh -huh. He's never had a that good of a year since. And my parents weren't super focused on school. I always did really well in school. So it wasn't a, a topic for them to ask. I remember my dad at one point being like, so are you like, are we going to go to college? What do you want to do? And I'd already applied. I had multiple right. SATs. So I just had been a self-starter. But what ended up happening is I wanted to go to a top tier college. And as I'm applying, obviously my dad, with what he'd done that year, I got no uh, federal financial aid at, at all. I didn't qualify for anything, which was crazy because I, over the next 12 months, watched him lose it all, 12 months, 
watched him lose it all trying to keep his business and his employees going, but I didn't qualify for anything. So I was like resetting my expectations of not going to an Ivy League because I wouldn't be able to afford it. And one of the things that I got from them was a true aversion to debt of any kind. That's definitely an immigrant mentality. You don't want to be beholden anyone else. They could take everything from you. Basic view of leverage. But as part of that, I didn't want to go in any true student debt. And I saw these numbers of $60,000. I personally never seen that kind of money in my life just for a year of tuition, not including room and board. So I started reshifting my expectations of to where could I go on a full ride, et cetera. And it became apparent that I could go in state. So I went to the University of Georgia where I was able to graduate in two years while working time so I could help my folks. Um, that's what I ended up doing rather than going to the traditional, what I would call like a top tier institution, even though the University of Georgia is a great school. Uh, I want to underscore that for anyone listening. And I had a great experience there. What I'd grown up going was you'd watch the movies, you're going to go to Harvard Law and you'll be a lawyer. So I did feel a little bit of pressure. And then I got to Georgia and I remember sitting with my guidance counselor, my advisor, whatever you want to call it, and I, I realized I wanted to do something internationally. I really thought the globalized world, here I'd come as an immigrant to this country, and I really thought that there was an opportunity there. So I said, I'm interested in something international. I think I want to go to law school. And they said, oh, cool, you have two options. You can do international affairs or you can do international business. I did a little bit of research, some Googling, and I ended up going international business. Mm -hmm. And as I hopped in and I got further immersed with the worlds of technology and what was happening with globalization, I ended up finishing school in two years and realizing, hey, I can go and learn a lot and create value and solve problems versus having another three years of law school, which would have been fine. I would have had a collegiate experience of yeah. five years instead of the traditional seven and then graduate. But as I looked through that, I was like, I want to create, I want to build, I want to, I want to solve big problems. And I didn't feel like I could do that with a law degree, even though looking back now probably would have been helpful. And, and you know, <laughs> I would have saved a lot of sure. legal I'll tell you that much, but ultimately realized that business was going to be for me through that lens. But going back to that original question, I felt a lot of pressure. And then once I got into the collegiate world, I, I basically just told my parents what I was going to do and didn't really get much pushback, which huh. maybe is a little yeah. atypical for, yeah. for immigrant families. Sure. All high performing entrepreneurs, you feel like they're trying to prove something often. Mm -hmm. So who do you think you're trying to prove something to? That's a really good question. I think that's true, actually. I think to myself, I'm sure to a point to my parents, I mean, it came here with $1,500 and two suitcases for me. So very much tied to this idea of they wanted to give me a better life and, and, and to change my start. So there's definitely that aspect of I want to make them proud. But more so, I think to myself, I feel like often I, I didn't go to the top tier Ivy League institution. I didn't have the traditional pedigree. I didn't go to Stanford and then go to Sand Hill Road and collect a check and all that stuff. And as part of that, I've always had this chip on my shoulder of I'm like an atypical entrepreneur. I'm not a typical technology SaaS founder, et cetera. One of my favorite quotes was, you're familiar with Matthew McConaughey, the actor. I don't watch a lot of movies, actually almost never. Huh. Um, I'm a really big TV guy. But I remember somebody showed me his Oscar acceptance speech. And he had this one step in there where he talks about who I wanted to improve was me 15 years down the line. I wanted to make that version of myself proud. Look what I've been able to accomplish. Look where I'm going and how do I set myself on that path. And I don't think anything has ever resonated more with me than a Matthew McConaughey Dallas Buyers Club Oscar speech to get as, <laughs> as niche as it's going to be. There you go. But that basically, that's it, right? Like I, I want to prove to bargain of the future that I can deliver on the aspirations that I have for myself. And then obviously, secondly, probably very much to my parents and a lot of folks along the way 
who would prefer that I go a more traditional route or just do the, the, the safe thing. And I don't think that you get the rewards from safe. You don't get to change the world. I'm sure you've seen this with founders too. There's a bit of that um, imposter syndrome, right? Who do you think you are getting to do these things? There's probably yeah. a bit of that in my, in my head too. But how I quell that is by proving it to myself. I can do this. I remember the first time I, I felt that way at my previous company, it was in the consumer space. We were a company of 12 people and Target had approached us about doing an exclusive partnership in our category. And they were looking at the established incumbents that had a thousand locations. And then our other competitor that had raised like $40 million and me by myself talking to all these Target execs won the deal. Italy all 12 person company versus much more incumbents, incredible really businesses. And at that point I was like, okay, I can do this. I can will things into existence and I can outwork people and I can refuse to give up and do whatever it possibly takes to get that. And that is something that nobody can compete with me on today. They right. can try, but I will refuse to quit. I will refuse to give up and I will outwork anybody. And right. that's basically a big part of it. So tell me part of that. Tell us part of that story because Voxy's not your first go rodeo. Yeah. And, and it's an interesting deal, the way it came together and what was demanded of you and sure. geographically what was demanded of you. And, and yet it's an important thing that I think founders understand. So talk through yeah. some of how that all came together. Yeah, so great question, Mark. So I, we talk about I got here atypically. How did I get to where I am today? So I didn't start by being a founder at a college or anything like that. I knew I wanted to create a business, but like most kids didn't know what I was going to do, didn't have a good idea, would I date a bunch, but I didn't really know what I was going to do and I was lost. And I ended up getting a job to be a, a consultant for, for a technology company. And what they do is at the time they bought EY's technology division and they were trying to expand offshoring, trying to get into technology because they were doing a bunch of things and got that job. Realized very quickly it wasn't going to be for me. It was a lot of, for lack of a better word, coming in and telling companies how to improve, but not really having empathy for the challenges they were facing hmm. and then leaving to go do the same thing over and over again. That's a great business that they've got all kinds of practices, et cetera. But it wasn't for me. I wanted to get my hands dirty. I actually wanted to move the needle. And I knew I wanted to start something, but I still didn't know what. So at that point, I was traveling all over, ended up coming back to Atlanta and really taking the first job I got, which was at Delta Airlines. I had a great experience at Delta. I learned a lot about a very competitive industry, met some wonderful folks. And actually where I ended up meeting my business partner for my first venture, which was a company called Menguin. We did online suit and tuxedo rentals. So a consumer business in 2013. In Atlanta, in Atlanta Georgia. Perfect. Yeah. I can't think of anything better. Talk about the stupidest idea. And then you went out and got a check right away. Yeah. That's, that's what we fund here. Not at all. So for anyone listening that's not from Atlanta, Atlanta traditionally has really been good at two things. Uh, one was real estate and two was healthcare IT. <laughs> and that fit neither. Obviously now it's expanded SaaS and marketing technology and things like that. But I talk about 2013, the venture ecosystem is very nascent. A lot of the players that exist today are not there. And I love what, what the ecosystems are in town. It's, it's awesome for, for entrepreneurs and really venture, but nobody would fund me. I was also an idiot. Like I would go to pitches and tuxedos. Like I want to underscore and get laughed out of rooms. I would deal with questions of people saying, why doesn't Amazon do this? Which by the way, any consumer venture in the world needs to have an answer for that question, right? But nobody got it. And on a whim, I got introduced to a direct-to-consumer entrepreneur in Northwest Arkansas 
that had scaled an online cowboy boot business to getting acquired by General Atlantic, oh. and now was operating a fund backed by some of the largest billionaires in Northwest Arkansas, some of who you will likely know that they are the chair people and own a company called Walmart, and got privileged to get, get access to those folks. And then obviously a lot of that ecosystem of folks that had scaled the largest retail brand in the world, but right. also the largest chicken and, and, and protein manufacturer that was right down the road that supplied to the largest retailer in the world, and also the largest largest trucking company that did all of their distribution in J.B. Hunt. So I got to meet all these folks in this incredible ecosystem, what's called Northwest Arkansas, and went up there and they saw the value. They saw that what we were creating, they obviously understood direct to consumer. And they were like, we think this internet thing is the future and you're going to have to rent online. And Bogdan, we want to back you. And if you're willing to move out here, we'll give you access to all of these incredible resources and we'll invest financially and we'll help you get the right connections and, and the right leverage. Bogdan, who thought he was going to go to Harvard, live in Paris. And, yeah. uh, and someone says, hey, just all you have to do is move to Northwest Arkansas. Yeah, we have one regional airport. Everything is five or six hours away. And just some random town called Fayetteville, Arkansas. By the way, the largest retailer up, is up right up the road, 20 minutes in Bentonville. But what, what do you think? You're exactly right, Mark, to juxtapose the, the just dramatic difference. Just even thinking back. And it was one of the best experiences of my life. Mm-hmm. I met incredible people. What you don't realize is because Walmart's there and they're a center of gravity, you have some world-class amenities, not just arts, but the school, the medicine, because you've got all these big companies that do business that have to basically send their top tier executives and the best of the best there. It's often viewed as an expat assignment. Mark, if you work for Procter & Gamble, doesn't work in China. He goes to Bentonville and at the end, he comes back with a promotion because it's our largest outlet, right. our, our, our largest vendor. So I got to meet some really world-class people. The university was awesome, but I ended up taking that deal because it was an incredible op- opportunity, but nobody else would back us. Nobody mm-hmm. else believed that in Menguin at the time and anywhere near the same level. Nobody was interested in backing it more than like $25,000. Mm-hmm. So we ended up moving out there and actually ended up raising our first round of funding and scaling the business. What, what uh, kind of it, size, what range are you willing to say? Right, Great question. So it was a little under a million bucks. Okay. Uh, it ended up being a rolling round. So uh, as part of that, we ended up taking a little more long term, but we ended up taking a little under a million bucks. And inside of 12 months, ended up almost 4Xing that in terms of revenue run rate mm-hmm. for the company, which was pretty crazy. And again, at that point, you're talking very difficult ROAS metrics, Facebook, none of the ecosystems are were as advanced as they were now. And I was really just doing word of mouth advertising. I was trying to figure it out. I was our, originally our, our technical co-founder, so I built a product. Shopify Plus doesn't exist. Sure, you can't right. customize webhooks. I built a custom PHP website, WordPress back, and it was so janky. That's what you had to do back <laughs> right. then. You, you, pixels were not click of a button integration with tool. Everything's working. It was just a completely different world. And then over time, ended up taking over our marketing function because we were unhappy with the growth that we were seeing and we thought we could do better. So I ended up owning both. And that really was the inflection point of how I got here where I am today at Voxy. I started hopping in and trying to figure out direct to consumer and how it worked. You acquire a customer and then you drip nurture them via email marketing and they come and buy. My emails didn't work. I was selling to a millennial consumer, 25 to 35, and I just kept watching my open rate, my efficacy decline. And remember, I didn't have any stores. This was very early days, direct to consumer, all online, et cetera. So it was all experience and email. That's how you talk to your customer. And it was very quickly declining in efficacy. So I went looking for a new way of connecting with my customer, stumbled upon texting them from my cell phone 
And that worked so well that I ended up going and buying a bunch of cell phones at Walmart and having everyone in our customer service center text our customers. Also totally not scalable <laughs> up until we ended up selling the business because we grew so quickly and we, we were able to sell those strategic, which was, if you remember George Zimmer, the guy that founded Men's Warehouse, yeah. his holding company purchased us. And I spent about a year and a half as the holding company CMO because they saw the growth of what we were building and they wanted to capitalize on it and have, have us bring these Bogdan's texting playbooks to the rest of the business units. Um, right. So we had a lot of success with that, uh, still in a manual format. So but going back- So talk to me real quick about how you make that decision to, to do that acquisition. How much of that was your decision? How much of that as investors? How did that all question. come about? Great question. So we were on the tail. We were growing really rapidly. And at this point, when I'm moving to Northwest Arkansas, I'm like, oh, this is gonna be much easier. What I don't realize is there's a real stigma by, by coastal elites that were constantly looking at pattern recognition, right? Where do I back founders? Where do I put my money to work? And it was overwhelmingly California and New right. York because that's where talent was. That's where access to capital was. They didn't believe you could build a solid business in the middle of the country. So they would basically just, just laugh at us, these two Arkansas hicks or whatever they, they wanted to call me at that point. Um, and once we started seeing this growth, we were dramatically growing once I unlocked texting with my customers, building relationships. Suddenly they were very interested in funding us. And we were getting term sheets from some of the top tier funds in the world, little old Menguin in Arkansas. But what happened is we started growing so quickly that we were having supply chain challenges. We couldn't actually keep up with demand. We'd invested heavily in reputation, having the highest rated and reviewed on the internet, anywhere you went. And suddenly we started having people not give us great reviews because the product wouldn't get there on time or the service was struggling. Which doesn't matter. It doesn't matter where the tux, if it doesn't show up yeah. on time, typically whatever you yeah, rented that for, it could be don't. late. That's not a big yeah, deal. Yeah. That's right. For the biggest day of your life. <laughs> typically you'd get it the day before the, the event. So I would get it to you two weeks beforehand. And suddenly I couldn't make you on that promise. And it was one week. And that's when things started getting really hairy. And we started getting concerned because we could raise, I called it a, at that point, a $10 million round, which was a lot of money. Now it's a norm. When we were talking about that and actively exploring it with a lot of really top tier funds, we had term sheets ready to go. And then I went to my, my suppliers, people that could get me the tuxes. I'd have to retrofit factories, all the stuff that you have to do in a consumer. And I couldn't really get them going for seven months. And at that point, I'm looking at giving a really bad experience or bringing down my, my marketing efficacy pretty dramatically and really capping growth. Neither of which were great options, one for our investors or our stakeholders, but two for our customers, because we were solving a real pain point. So very quickly uh, realized we didn't have many options. We had to figure out how to handle the inventory challenge. That's why a strategic made a lot of sense. And originally I went to them to borrow inventory at a premium, mm, sure. not to sell. And they very quickly saw it, put a term sheet. I'll never forget this. I had an LOI to buy the company seven days after my first daughter was born. I'd flown to San Francisco to meet with them. So seven days after my daughter was born, we're negotiating the terms of this LOI in George's living room. Just as a real experience, I literally was like running on no sleep because I, I need at least four and a half hours to function. So I'm like delirious. I don't even know where I am. Right. You know, I'm just getting dragged at this thing. We're trying to figure it all out. And we negotiated this great deal for the business. Um, it made a lot of sense for our shareholders, et cetera. Whose decision was it? It came down to mine and my business partners. Or what do we want to do? But then when we put it to the board, it was like, we have really two options. Do we take a short-term impact? I'm sure we can weather it. You guys are smart. We'll figure it out. We've got a great team. Or this makes a lot of sense. They've got a ton of inventory ready to rent. 10x what we'll have in the next two years because they're so well capitalized. And they really could use more demand gen and more growth. 
So it seemed like a great way to marry both of those together, which is what we ended up doing. And everybody did quite well. Shareholders did really well. And that fund that invested in us, we were their first big exit. So they were able to return a healthy amount of the fund. Everybody was quite thrilled with the outcome. So it how about, ended up- How about you? Yeah. Did it feel like a success? No, uh, that's a really good question. It didn't, right? Because one, I didn't really finish the the mission. And two, I would say that maybe talk about build, being a founder and what you want to create. And it felt like we still had a long way to go. And so a big part of what they were buying wasn't just the business in a traditional situation where you leave. They were really buying kind of the management team. And the expectation was my business partner and I would come and help. So that's what ended up happening. He ended up becoming president of the business and I ended up becoming our CMO and basically scaling the business units. And I did that for about a year and a half. But what I realized during that part is that I was really passionate about solving problems. And what I really loved doing was helping the organizations and the businesses we were helping grow talk to those end customers. I loved getting feedback. We would do these manual texting plays out of our call center and we'd learn so much. And I'd be like, I have so much fodder for my ads. I know exactly how to attack this competitor. I know exactly what Mark wants to buy next. This is awesome. I wish I could scale it. And I kept saying that over and over again. I wish I had a system that could do this for me and help my business improve. And I kept looking late nights, et cetera, I'd Google, I'd find, maybe I'm not searching for the right thing. Maybe it's called this thing. I'd ask this buddy that was knowledgeable about this thing. And I couldn't find anything that could do what I was looking to do, which is two-way conversations at scale, understanding sentiment, understanding what the customer wanted, and then personalizing those experiences afterwards, the touch points, the follow-ups, and then ultimately driving home that purchase. And that really was what inspired Boxy. I became obsessed with solving this problem. It went from thinking about the business nonstop to thinking about this really much broader problem. So when it was time for me to move on, I knew very quickly that I wanted to solve a problem in the communication space of helping businesses talk to their customers. The last day I drove out of the parking lot, I called my wife and I'd been thinking in the back of my head, what do I name it, what do I name it? And I, as I'm walking out, I Googled to grow in different languages and Voxy is to grow in Swedish and Norwegian. And I was like, hey, I think I'm going to call it Voxy. Uh, and she was like, what are you talking about? And I was like, the business <laughs> that the, the next company. Uh, yeah, the, the next company that I've decided on as I'm driving out of this parking lot. I wanted to be done with that, to move, transition out. And then as soon as I was done with that, I had the mental clarity to say, okay, this is what I'm going to do because this is a real problem. So that, so that big company experience, did that teach you that you want to get better at that? Or did that teach yeah. you that you never want to be in that situation again? That's a great question. Looking at it now, and as we grow, Voxy is growing anywhere between five to seven people a month right now is that we're, that we're adding. When you map that out over a, a time period, we'll get pretty big if we continue executing and helping our customers. And what it, what it taught me, like in hindsight, was I need to have those skills. You have to know how to motivate, align an organization of a much larger size, but also how to get buy-in. As you all know, I love my own ideas but I don't necessarily love other people's ideas. How do you get people to buy into an idea, to contribute to it, to make it a collective idea because now they're invested in wanting it to succeed. What I realized looking back was those things are so important as an entrepreneur, especially as the business gets bigger, because that's how you run things. You don't run things by do this and do that. At least that's not how I run them. You run them through goals, mission, vision, values. And to do that, you have to get buy-in. You can't let yourself slow down. I am convinced that the older a company is, the further and further it's decelerating in terms of speed. So it's like me against nature. I'm trying to do the exact opposite. We're getting older, we're getting better, but we've got to keep the foot on the gas. You have to keep going fast. 
Otherwise, you will stagnate. So uh, do, you, do you enter Voxy with any kind of chip on your shoulder still? Yes. Oh, yeah. Uh, a ton of chips on my shoulder. So when I started the business, I instantly got people telling me this already exists. This already exists. And right. to this day, I hear that. And they'll do insert 20-year-old competitor that does nothing that we do right. that you can't even reference that already exists. So texting, that already exists. Aren't there like a million companies doing that? And uh, I, I came in very quickly when I launched that. And for a brief second, I was like, am I stupid? Was I just like Googling the wrong thing? Have there been like a million companies that could do this and I just couldn't find them? I would say one of my superpowers is finding and purchasing software or understanding the right solution for a need, not just for now, but in the future. So I was pretty cognizant that I'd been exhaustive in my search efforts and that I hadn't been able to find anything. I'd, I'd gone everywhere. I'd gone to YC. I'd cold emailed the partners at YC. Are you backing anything in this space? If you do, let me know. I'll be a first client. Like I'd gone crazy with some of that stuff. So what, it, what I realized is maybe I wasn't explaining it properly. And to this day, I still struggle to explain what Voxy does because it can be so many things to so many different businesses. But yeah, 100%. There are now people that are telling me that competitors are going to get in your space and they're going to kill you because they've raised X amount of money. They have a team that's 10 times as big as you, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a lot that I want to prove. But fundamentally, what I also want to do is teach and show businesses today have a problem. They like to talk at their customers with email, with billboards, with ads. They don't like to talk with their customers. And that is where all the learning comes. That's where you learn what Mark or Bogdan wants to buy, what they're actually interested in, why they're buying your product. You don't actually know the why behind anything. You're making assumptions based off lookalike audiences and, and, mm -hmm. and, and fancy survey tools you bought on the internet. That's not the same as having detailed conversations, first person, from your customers that tell you exactly the specifics. So that's what I wanted to do and build and that's what I set up to power.